the Cologne's King's Chronicle wrote the following for the year 1112. Quote, Conjuratio Cologne facta est pro libertate. End quote. That was Latin, of course. If your knowledgement of this is a bit rusty or you have never lived in the glory of ancient Rome, here is the translation. Quote, a conspiracy for freedom was founded in Cologne. End quote. What this means exactly and why this entry in the Cologne Royal Chronicle still puzzles us today in historical research, you will learn in a moment. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city has endured a colorful and rich past. Today, and you might think, hmm, this time this episode sounds a little bit different. I moved, not to some other place far away. No, I just moved in our apartment. We are still renovating the place. And yeah, un until then, it will have the sound like this. But enjoy. Today, we will turn our attention to the emerging wealthy citizens of Cologne. I know that the word citizens is complicated for the Middle Ages. Unlike today, citizens, or how it was pronounced in German, Bürger, in that period did not automatically mean every single inhabitant of a city or country. However, for the sake of simplicity, I will speak of citizens or Bürger in this episode. We will have to take a closer look at the topic of citizenship and being a citizen another time. We had already talked extensively about political structures in the city in the penultimate episode. The already mentioned magistrates, city bailiff, burggraf and the high court are, but above all, one thing. All bodies created by the city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne, or directly subordinate to him. And yes, I had explained to you how the collegiate of magistrates in particular was used by the emergent citizens of Cologne to acquire political powers for themselves and to emancipate themselves from the city lord. That's right, but whatever tell you that in the 12th century, another all-municipal unofficial authority is formed, one that, unlike the already mentioned wards, feels responsible not only for the respective district of a city, but for the entire urban area of Cologne, a brotherhood bound by oaths, the offices and posts among themselves distributed, even far into the collegiate of magistrates. A brotherhood of moneybags is making its way to the top of the city administration in the 12th century. Is this where we find the origins of the Cologne nepotism that shaped the city up until the early 21st century? Indeed, this is not so completely wrong. Let's find out right after the intro. I have since recovered from my man cold from last episode. I'm glad that this last episode was as well received as the other episodes. Thank you for sticking by. But let's jump right into the topic. Let us dedicate ourselves to this shortly but hotly debated entry of the King's Chronicle for the year 1112. Manfred Groten, 
a connoisseur of the Middle Ages and author whom we have already mentioned here as a source, assumes that this King's Chronicle was created around the year 1177 in the Siegburg Monastery, but was then later continued in Cologne. This is the reason for its name, Cologne, King's Chronicle. It was not written in one go, but in several phases until 1220. There it says, as mentioned for the year 1112, that a, quote, conspiracy for freedom, end quote, was formed in Cologne. Of course, this raises questions. What kind of conspiracy is that? And then there's the question of the year 1112? Let's start with that. The year 1112 is really strange that it's mentioned here, because to say the least, nothing happened in Cologne that year. So yes, people were born, died, and so on, but nothing historically significant for the city of Cologne happened. The year 1114, however, two years later, comes more into consideration. Here, Emperor Henry V attacked the city. In this year, the archbishop and the city's population were in unusual harmony and fought unitedly against the royal attacker. Successfully, as you know only too well from a previous episode, the imperial attack was repelled at Deutz. Probably the corresponding chronicler who started recording at least 60 years after the events, at the earliest, was mistaken in the year 1112, just by those two years, when the city's population and the archbishop allied with each other and fought against Emperor Henry V in 1114. The word conspiracy, on the other hand, must also be examined. The word can be misleading from today's perspective. A better word here would rather be that of oath community. In general, townspeople in many parts of Europe realized that it made sense to band together for certain goals. They got together to speak with a united voice and to act as a united political force towards, for example, the city lord or somebody else powerful in the area. Remember Anno II, the archbishop, and his view of the Cologne merchants in 1074 who rebelled against him. For him, they were not a separate class of the population, but merely his subjects, whether craftsman, day laborer, or rich merchant. For Anno, every inhabitant of Cologne was his subject, regardless of his status. Members of an oath association or oath community thus organize themselves externally for a certain goal for a limited time. They often act as a common community of interest across all ranks, as was probably the case in 1114 when the citizens, the burghers, and the archbishop joined forces as allies at eye level. One cannot imagine a greater difference in status, city lord and his subjects. The temporary overcoming of this was a characteristic of an oath community. But they also organized themselves internally. As a cooperative, all members have equal rights to each other and they assure each other of security. So similarly as it also many associations and clubs do still today. Only the fighting against the city lords has decreased as a goal of a club nowadays. Well. It depends on where exactly you are a member of. These oath communities for the rising middle classes in the cities were very successful in medieval Europe. In 1231, many decades after these events here in this episode, Emperor Frederick II was to launch an attempt to ban all 
of communities in the empire, but the ban was to fail miserably, much less was it observed in any way. Oath communities had then long been established there and had their fixed place in Europe. And so entries like those of the King's Chronicle about the year 1112 and 1114, by the way, are not the beginnings of civic and overall community development within the citizenry, but just an advanced process that is recorded here. How did the wealthy citizens in Cologne actually get into such a powerful position? To negotiate with the city ruler and later also with kings and emperors at eye level, as we already learned in the course of this podcast. What favored the rise of the citizens in more recent times here in the 12th century? The literacy north of the Alps increased more and more among the people. Due to a warmer climate, there were more economic surpluses in agriculture, so a better economic development occurred for many decades and even centuries. This was also connected with more security in general in Europe. From late antiquity until the middle of the 10th century, Europe had been plagued by external military incursions, Huns, Vikings, Magyars or Hungarians, and so on. Now, however, there were no more external incursions, and the trade routes had become safer. So how can we also see the rise of the citizens, especially the beginning of it? As is so often the case, the beginnings lie in the dark. The organization of a rich elite in a city into a oath community was something that occurred very often and above all very early on, especially in northern Italy. Here the Roman heritage, with all the communal characteristics we already know, had been most strongly preserved in urban structures despite the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the late 5th century here. Ostrogoths, Lombards and Franks who ruled here in the early Middle Ages gladly resorted to the remaining urban Roman structures. Since Otto the Great, northern Italy had been part of the Holy Roman Empire. Regardless, Cologne's merchants were aware of the rights and fellowship enjoyed by their Italian trading partners, for example in Milan or Verona. Wouldn't that be something for back home in Cologne as well? And of course, this is not just what the wealthy people of Cologne thought. Throughout Europe, the idea of a communal community spread in the cities, especially in northern France, Flanders, and of course, the Rhineland. Later, oath communities were to extend far beyond the regional level. One entity that still exists today, which once started as an oath community in the 13th century, you surely all know. Good cheese high mountains and expensive watches on your wrist. That's right, Switzerland. In Cologne in 1074, during the revolt against Anno, it had been noticed how powerful already a spontaneous uprising against the hated city ruler could be by the citizens. Remember, what happened in 1074 had been spontaneous. The merchant's son, who had been agitating against the seizure of his father's ship, had not planned the uprising long ago after all. He, with his wealthy friends and their followers, had nevertheless been able to run the bishop out of town for a couple of days. So, what would happen if they, the citizens, perhaps joined forces for a longer period of time, with stronger structures and more long-term goals? 
This is where, and sorry, I have to use the original old German word for that, but this is where the Richardseche comes in. Richardseche? What is that? Let's clarify that after a short break. What was the Richardseche? The Richardseche, and this is a word you will hear a lot in this episode, was a community of highly ranked male residents of Cologne. The members were organized cooperatively among themselves, like a temporary oath community. Only here it was permanent, for life. How exactly in the 12th century all individual members of this Richardseche were called, for example, what their names were, where they came from, where they lived and what they worked, you can guess we do not know exactly for this period, at least not for all of them. But be happy about it, we will be able to list individual biographies in a moment. A clue, however, is given by the name of this brotherhood, which nevertheless makes one smile, the Richardseche. From this word you can see how much German has changed over the centuries. I would not understand first at hearing that word what it, would, what it means. So if you understand German, of course, for a native speaker of German today, the word Richardseche is no longer directly recognizable. So what does it mean? It consists of two words that were mixed together, Riech, as in English rich, and Zeche, which in Middle High German simply means brotherhood or union, so brotherhood or union of the rich. This is funny because the name was a foreign term and quite meant as an insult a square word, which the normal people in Cologne, who are not rich and wealthy, used for this elitist group. I actually do not swear here in the podcast and will also leave it here at this point. But it would be as if such a group nowadays, which has dedicated itself to charity, for example, like Rotary or the Lions Club, would call itself a Big Shot Union or the Snotty Club. By the way, I know people in both clubs and they are great people, so this is not meant as an insult to anyone who is a member of those clubs. According to the name, wealthy men from Cologne had joined together in this cooperative. But from which stratum did these wealthy men come? Surely it was the merchants of Cologne, right? Who had come to great wealth through the increasingly intensified long-distance trade and who had already known how to express themselves politically for several decades. Yes, the merchants of Cologne were there, of course. But not only this social group. And that's what makes the Richardseche so, in so interesting. I just pronounced so in a German way, sorry. Because to belong to this illustrious group, that is, to the better ones in the city, did not mean that one was only rich to have to belong to this group. Power and high reputation were also taken anyway into this select group. And so, in the Richardseche, the social groups that were actually different from the outside and had wealth, power or high standing merged with each other. Also present in the Richardseche were ministerials, unfree men, but who gained wealth and influence through the transfer of lucrative tasks from their lord, for example the archbishop. But above all, there were also the magistrates, those members who attended the high court on behalf of the archbishop and took over administrative tasks for the city lord, you know, the magistrates we talked about two episodes before. With their collegiate of magistrates, 
they had already laid claim to being the hinge between the two sides, although originally primarily in the service of the archbishop, but coming from the middle of the city population, and precisely as the municipal body that could represent both the power of the archbishop and the citizenry, the both big political forces that are struggling in the city for power. Each magistrate was at the same time a member of this Richardseche. Merchants and other wealthy and influential non-magistrates, as already mentioned, were also present. So in this group of the Richardseche, you don't only have one wealthy kind of people like the merchants, but several or all classes of rich people in Cologne, like the merchants, the ministerials, and the magistrates. And often, those borders would not be so recognizable. A magistrate could be a ministerial as well, and also be a merchant. Or a merchant could also be in the collegiate of magistrates as well. It was not that he must have been a ministerial as well. He could have been a free man, for example. But that's a different topic. Let's continue. But what this means, that from all these groups, a new upper class among the Cologne citizenry emerges. Each year, two mayors were elected within the members of the Richardseche. Also, here it is to be noted, these were the mayors of the Richardseche, not those of the entire city of Cologne or as mayors of the city council. And, fun fact, Cologne does not even have a city council at that time. Not yet. What was the task of those two Richardseche mayors? Well, with the research I had to do, I have to smirk a little bit about that. The main job of the two mayors was to host a hearty and large feast on August 9th, the feast day of St. Lawrence, for all the already former mayors of the Richardseche, the collegiate of the Richardseche. When their term of office expired after one year, these two mayors became part of that collegiate of the Richardseche, into which only already deserving members were allowed to enter, and which acted as the executive committee of the Richardseche. This was where the real power lay, and where the income of the Richardseche, which was earned as a cooperative, was distributed among the members. Doesn't that remind you of something, if you have already listened to this podcast recently? Exactly, this structure sounds pretty similar to that of the wards of the city, which also annually elected two mayors for the district, and then after the expiry of their term of office, of the year, led them into their collegiate of the ward, where the actual power and leadership of the ward lay. So yeah, we can assume that the wards were the big inspiration how to organize the Richardseche. When did the Richardseche come into being? The exact date or the exact year is unfortunately in the dark. Nevertheless, don't worry, we have enough clues so that we can narrow down the period. 1074, the year of the uprising against Anno, we can already exclude. Here we had noted that the uprising certainly had the elements of a politically emancipating uh, citizenry, but this had been nevertheless rather a spontaneous outbreak of resistance. 
However, the experience of 1074 may have led in the medium term to the fact that the wealthy citizens got together more and more. 1106 and 1114 could also be good foundation dates. After all, the citizens were facing enormous political and even military challenges in those two years. Unfortunately, we do not know an exact year of foundation, but a look at the shrine books mentioned two episodes ago bring light into the darkness. I don't know if that's a proverb in English or, in, or a metaphor in English, but it is in German, I hope. Since the 1130s, the ward of Little St. Martin, located near the Heumarkt Square, began to record legal transactions such as leases, purchases and sales, marriage contracts and neighborhood agreements on large sheets of parchments which they stored in boxes, so-called shrines at that time, in their parish church or close to their parish church in a special house that was called the House of the Ward. Now I'll try to summarize something that is actually quite complex, really complex. I read dozens of pages about this topic. The title Herr, like Mr. or Senor or Senor in other languages, was not at all common in the Middle Ages, as it is used in German today for addressing adult males, like Mr. Smith in English or Mr. Potter, for example. I am in German Herr Fromm, Mr. Willem Fromm, when people address me formally in public or in correspondence. In the Middle Ages, however, only patricians, the highest-ranking citizens on the city, were addressed by the title Herr before their names in cities. But this, interestingly, was not the case in Cologne. Here only a very small circle of men was addressed with the honorary title of Herr. Here only someone was addressed with the title Herr, or Mr., if he was mayor of the Richardsche, or had already been a mayor in the past. Also, when in the 13th century the city council takes shape, its members were never addressed with the title Herr, as it has been in other cities of the empire. The whole topic around the term Herr is still far more complex than just presented by me, but I will leave it at that for now, because what I want to say, if someone appeared in the 12th century in the shrine books and had in front of his name, uh, before his name, the word Herr, or rather Dominus in Latin, he was with high probability a member of the Richardsche, since he stated with the title that he was already in the past or currently mayor of this cooperative. I hope you can follow me here. And so we also learn sporadically what the names of the members of the Richardsche were, at least some of them, who made it right to the top of it. Thus we learn in the oldest surviving shrine book of Little St. Martin, made between 1135 and 1142, of a man named Waldo. And no, I'm not kidding you, that was his real name. We find Waldo. In front of his name is the word Dominus, meaning, in German, Herr or Mr. in English. The entry testifies here that Mr. Waldo, or Herr Waldo, was already deceased. Other surviving documents about the same person away from the shrine books describe Waldo as a ministerial, an unfree servant of the archbishop, but thereby coming to power and wealth, who worked for the wealthy monastery of St. Pantaleon not as a monk, but probably as an administrative official there. 
As a richly endowed monastery with many properties and benefices, the job there as a minister was certainly lucrative for Waldo, which gave him access to the Riecherzeche. But look, here we have at least a Cologne man for the first time in a long time who is not a noble or an archbishop. How nice is that? Since Waldo is already documented in the years 1135 and 1142 as already being deceased in the shrine book of Little St. Martin, he must have exercised his office as mayor in the Richardseche at the latest in the 1120s. Thus, we can at least place the first evidence of an existence of the Richardseche into the years of the 1120s. This coincides with other persons appearing in the records of Little St. Martin shrine books, like the Herr Werner, a tax collector in the service of the archbishop, is besides an entry in that shrine book also documented in another document from 1125. So this also means that he held the office of mayor within the Richardseche also before the year 1135. And Herr Konrad, who is listed in a Another shrine book of about 1130 as living in the district of St. Lawrence, directly north of the Jewish quarter in the area of today's Hohestrasse, is listed there as a mayor of the year 1124, which the year has already passed. Herr Konrad had gained access to this elite brotherhood of the Richardseche through his office as a treasurer to the archbishop, that is, as financial administrator. All this means, all these three biographies tell us, of course, that the Richardseche entered the political stage of the city's history from the 1120s, at the latest. However, as is often the case, one can assume that it may have happened even before that, perhaps as early as 1106, when they fought against the city ruler and the emperor at the same time as a citizenry. But, you know... There is no evidence of this, and this is just something I make up for you. However, a complete list of the members of the Richardseche for this period is not possible for us. Not even for the smaller group within the cooperative, which sat in the collegiate of the Richardseche and consisted only of former mayors. But so, this example shows how valuable the shrine books in the wards of the city are for the research of Cologne's city history, for they give us at least, with some names, an insight into the otherwise elusive group for this early phase. Let's take a short break. Now I have explained big and wide what the Richardseche is a cooperative group of rich and powerful as well as prestigious Cologne residents from various elite circles of the city's population. But now you might think, well, it's just another interest group, but it was more than that. For the next 250 years, the Richardseche formed a cooperative, so to speak, which decisively determined the city's rule and also carried it out in a dominant manner. But why was the Richardseche established in the first place? Couldn't the rich and powerful citizens of Cologne have used the magistrates mentioned two episodes earlier for this purpose and being in the collegiate of magistrates? True, it was formally subject, this collegiate of magistrates, to the archbishop as a body and was thus an instrument of city rule for the archbishop. 
but it had become apparent that the collegiate of magistrates had already taken on a variety of other municipal tasks in the 12th century, so they were not just advisors at court anymore as they first were intended to do such as the supervision of markets, custom duties, management and administration of properties in the city. And even as a cooperative, the Collegiate of Magistrates now speaking about, it managed to balance the wishes of the city population with the will of the city ruler, to feel itself thus quasi as the link between the city population and the power of the archbishop, long before there was even an official city council. However, the experience of the wealthy citizens in the years 1074, 1106, and 1119, where they had rebelled against the will of the city ruler, had probably created the lasting desire to create something of their own, something that was not officially under the sovereignty of the archbishop. This also fits in with the increasingly dependent actions of Cologne citizens that we have been able to observe in the recent past in the uh, latest episodes. Now, of course, this raises the question for me. Wasn't there stress between the Richard Zeche and the already existing Collegiate of Magistrates? Interestingly, through the centuries, we find nothing of it in historical sources. That was strange. Surely, as a Collegiate of Magistrates, there was no desire to share power or even to leave it, with, or leave it to others. But that was not the case. This was due to the fact that Richard Zeche skillfully knew how to include the Collegiate of Magistrates in its structures and even strengthen them as an independent political power in the city apart from the Archbishop. This created a win-win situation for both sides. One hand washes the other, as we say in German. Like I said, I have no idea if that's a metaphor in English as well. And... There, people know each other, and people help each other, as we say in Cologne. Thus, all magistrates were automatically members within this brotherhood of the rich, powerful, and respected. The proportion of magistrates among the total members of the Richardsche may have been very small. There were far more merchants and rich citizens and ministerials in the city than the approximately two dozen magistrates. So clearly, in the minority within the Richardsche, one could have thought that there should have been conflicts. But even this was not the case, because the numerical minority of the magistrates within the Brotherhood was neutralized with a rule. Thus, the rules of the Richardsche stipulated that at least one of the two annually elected mayors of this cooperative had to come from among the magistrates. Since the mayors were then automatically admitted to the actual leadership circle of the Richardsche for life, the collegiate of the Richardsche at the end of their one-year term of office, the proportion of magistrates at the top of the Richardsche was disproportionately large, namely practically 50-50, and thus also their influence in this governing body. As if one would say that 50% of all members of the Congress must necessarily be left-handed, although the proportion of left-handed people is between 10 and 25% measured against the total population. I hope the recording is still good because I just noticed how my 
microphone arm that holds my mic went slowly down and down and more. Now I have to hold it with my hand because it seems to be broken right in the middle of this recording. So now I'm holding it with one hand and let's all pray that I will be able to hold it up long enough. Well, at least until this episode is finished. But let's continue. The Richardseche thus became a citywide authority, with the paradox that it was not actually a city authority, for it was not the city ruler who had established it, the archbishop, but the rich and powerful inhabitants of Cologne. We can see this paradox on the basis of the city seal and who really had it at their disposal. Now, one might think that it was naturally incumbent on the magistrates to keep this city seal as a citywide and above all older institution as which they saw themselves. That is also true, but so half, but far from it. The city seal was kept in the house of the rich, in the meeting house of the Richardseche, behind the old market, which was located in the Jewish quarter. Why is this so special? Well, before we can clarify that, we need to dive into sphragistics for a moment. Sphrav what? The wonderful word simply means seal lore. How I was tormented with it at university, although I exaggerate, it was okay, but still I found paleography the best of the historical auxiliary sciences. But I'm digressing. Let's continue after a short break and maybe I can get this microphone fixed. Well, it seems real that my microphone arm is really broken, but this will not stop us to have fun with Cologne city history, right? Let's continue. What are seals in general? I mean, not the animal, I mean the document thing. Seals are an imprint of a stamp that is pressed into a soft material. Wax, for example, is often used as the material. This is known to you certainly for some, from something like uh, Renaissance fairs or even from movies. Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings seals a letter with wax that contains the one ring of power. Or Harry Potter, who lives with his foster family, the Dursleys, under the stairs and is amazed at the wax seal with the word Hogwarts on the letters that reach him a large numbers when he is turning 11, provided along with a badger, lion, snake and eagle in it. Even if they were famous pop cultural references, seals have been very important for centuries, if not millennia, for people's communication and authentication. If you were in Rome and received a letter from Cologne, you had no way of knowing whether the letter really came from your body. You cannot just pick up the phone and say, hey, was that you, buddy, who sent me that letter? No, you could not do that. Or you could never know without it if this was not a scammer who asked you for stupid money for something, similar to the phishing mails you get by email nowadays. With something like that, it always helps to not just look at the letterhead of the email, but to really check if that is a legitimate email address that you know sometimes. The same could be offered by a seal. A seal stamp, being handmade, was virtually unique. Even if you wanted to forge it, 
which did happen, of course, it was extremely tedious. Above all, this was laborious, because the scribes of Europe knew the seals of the usual rulers, bishops, and the pope, even the smallest deviation in a forgery could thus be discovered quickly. The importance of seals has decreased enormously for our everyday life due to the technological progress in our time. In a modern world with digitalization, physical seals have had their day. They are too costly and technically outdated. Before that, however, seals were very important over the centuries, even millennia. The early advanced civilizations on Euphrates and Tigris rivers used seals as did ancient Egypt. In addition to its function as a means of sealing, as with letters, a seal served above all as a sign of recognition and as a means of authentication, especially when a messenger traveled to a distant place with a message or to prevent forgery. Charles the Great loved to send written orders to all corners of his great empire with his seal on it. In the European Middle Ages, the seal then became the means of authentication par excellence. The Pope, for example, made extensive use of it when sending letters and documents to bishops. Many of them were far away from Rome and of course had to be sure that the message really came from the Pope. Above all, the seal became popular as a means of authentication of emperors, kings and nobles, since many of them could not write at that time. Only a full stroke was put by a ruler in his monogram painted by others, but his own signature, the, the typical ruler was not able to do that because he couldn't write. This was not really what made a document safe from forgery, of course. Thus, the seal moved more and more into the center of attention in its function as a means of authentication. In the early Middle Ages, kings and bishops were the first to use seals. Seals were expensive. You needed a good stamp, which you put in heated wax or liquid metal, sometimes even gold. This, of course, is not cheap. So until the 11th century, only the most powerful of the powerful could afford seals. From the year 1000 onwards, however, monasteries or cathedral chapters also started to acquire their own seals in order to produce authenticated documents. From the 12th century, the rest of the nobility, such as counts or noblemen, followed suit. And, drumroll, also cities. Cologne in the lead. The archbishops of Cologne had been using seals for a long time. The city of Cologne itself and its citizenry, however, until 1100, not yet. It makes sense that the city population wanted its own seal. If, like the people of Cologne, they increasingly made deals behind the archbishop's back, as happened in 1106 or 1119, then of course they wanted to have their own seal, so that they could make deeds themselves with, for example, Emperor Henry V. At that time, it was also considered a sign of prestige to have such an own seal, besides the already mentioned advantages of using seals. Just as some only do a dissertation to be able to have a doctorate in their name and not, as actually thought, to deepen a scientific career. From the middle of the 12th century, there is evidence of a city seal of the citizens of Cologne. Of course, this does not mean that there was not only one from then on. The city seal was probably created between 1114 and 1119, when the city fought together with Archbishop Frederick I against Emperor Henry V. If one looks at this first 
Cologne City Seal, one notices that Archbishop Frederick, who probably approved this for the citizens, after all, one was in league with the Cologne citizenry against Henry V at this time, had great influence on the design of the seal. This first seal from the early 12th century shows St. Peter sitting on a bench in the center with the key to heaven in his right hand and the book of life in his left. St. Peter is considered the gatekeeper of heaven in Christianity. Whoever wants to go to heaven after death must first pass Peter, who checks in the book whether one is worthy to enter here. A gatekeeper of heaven, so to speak. Who is not on the guest list in his book, he doesn't let in. How does one come up with the idea of using St. Peter for a seal for Cologne? Well, St. Peter was considered the patron saint of Cologne Cathedral and the entire archdiocese. The archbishop in office at the time saw himself as Peter's representative here on the spot. Around St. Peter and this seal is a city wall, and this is of course supposed to refer to Cologne's magnificent city wall, which was also considered a prestige object in those days. Of course, the wall also stands for the heavenly Jerusalem, which is emulated. The seal is drowned and is surrounded by a text which also refers to an archiepiscopal co-creation. There it does not say, this is the seal of the citizens of the city of Cologne, but it says, quote, Sancta Colonia Dei Grazia Romane Ecclesiae Fidelis Filia, end quote. This is of course Latin and for many of you certainly not immediately understandable, therefore gladly hear the translation. The transcription says, translated, quote, Holy Cologne, by God's grace, faithful daughter of the Roman Church, end quote. Wow, that's quite a statement. It is clearly noticeable that there is no speech of the citizens or the city here, but that's entirely due to the spirit of the time. Sancta Colonia, as you know from an early episode, so Holy Cologne, was a designation that the city first used already in 870 AD. It was a title that was also proudly and gladly used by the people outside the clergy as well, by the way, until 1794. The design, including the inscription, was probably a concession by the citizens to the archbishop to have their own seal. And if so, one now had one's own independent city seal. Yay! As a citizenry, one could now draw up documents and deeds oneself. That was what was valid. Cologne's city seal is considered one of the earliest city seals in the empire. Many other cities would therefore take Cologne's design as a model. That it was a seal of the citizens can be determined, as at the beginning to the topic of sphagistics, thus the seal law, namely by the storage place. The place of storage for this seal was in the so-called House of the Rich. This was the headquarters of the Richardseche, a house directly north of the Old Market, in the Jewish Quarter. This was the nucleus of the later City Hall, which is still located here today. So important was this place that even the magistrates preferred to meet here in the House of the Rich rather than in the cathedral courtyard in the very shadow of the Archbishop's Palace. Whoever had the city seal also had the power of the execution and certification of documents and deeds. This was also used diligently. 
also, what a surprise, to expand the Richard Zeche's own political power. This can be seen clearly at the end of the 12th century. In 1148, Archbishop Arnold I was suspended from his office as Archbishop by the Pope. The accusation? Two lacks performance of his duties as a spiritual leader and the sale of ecclesiastical offices, the so-called simony. This had previously been very common among church leaders, simony, but by now Rome was trying to crack down on this widespread practice, which they saw as false. Archbishop Arnold I was thus occupied with quite different problems and tried from then on, unsuccessfully, to lift the suspension until his death in 1151. The wealthy people of Cologne had never really warmed to Arnold I anyway. Remember the last episode when the citizenry had dared to revolt right at the beginning of his tenure as Cologne's archbishop? In this way, the political weakness of the city lord was exploited and further rights of the city lordship were seized by the Richardsche, like also the so-called guild sovereignty. What guilds are poor! We must illuminate that another time, but since people remembered, this had actually been a right of the archbishops of Cologne to decide about guilds. Now the Richardsche decided who was allowed to found a guild, and who was not. If a guild was confirmed, for example, that of the woodturners in 1183-1184, then this had great economic consequences. From now on, anyone who wanted to be a woodturner had to be a member of the corresponding guild, so this professional association. But as I said, that's a separate topic for another time. How many members did the Richardsche have in the 12th century, the quasi-Cologne-Napotism group of the Middle Ages? That one does not know exactly, as said. However, as elitist as the cooperative was, it was not yet a completely closed or exclusive group in this century. Newcomers could join if they fulfilled one of the three known requirements, wealth, reputation and or power. From the end of the 12th century, however, the Richardsche would become more and more close to new members. The Richardsche is therefore the nucleus of many later patrician families that were to shape Cologne's history, like those of the Oberstolzens, Giers, Lüskirchens or Hardefusts. The Richardsche virtually dominated Cologne for 250 years and played a major role in determining politics and history. Of course, this is not all that could be said about the Richardsche. Much will still be told here in the future. At the end of this episode, however, I am left with questions that I honestly don't know yet. Because what I honestly still ask myself? Why did the archbishops, as the rulers of the city, allow this development to happen? That a Richardsche was formed? Or were they simply no longer able to prevent such a... Uh, development. Does anyone know? If so, feel free to write me. The following served me as research. Especially Felicitas Schmieder and Manfred Groten with their respective books about the city in the Middle Ages. Then also an essay by Manfred Groten about the Richardsche in the 12th century. And of course the classic, the standard work Cologne in the High Middle Ages by Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar.
I hope you enjoyed this new excursion into the constitutional history of the city of Cologne. For the next episode, I already have several ideas, but I have not quite yet decided. Just stay curious. Subscribe and rate this podcast in the podcast app of your choice. I would really appreciate it. Many thanks to my patrons for funding this episode. And thanks this time to Philip, Alexander, Sabine, George, Regina and Sylvia for your tips via PayPal. Until next time, recommend me further and auf Wiedersehen.